is a much more serious passage of Scripture. And Exodus chapter number 5. As we turn our attention to our work through the Old Testament and following the story of how God began with humanity made in his image and innocent and perfect to watch humanity fall into depravity and be marred in that image. And ultimately from Genesis to Revelation is the story of redemption where God will redeem fallen humanity from the marred image of Adam and reconciliation that God would reconcile with humanity, at least the members of Adam's race, for there is one race, it's Adam's race, at least the members of Adam's race who are willing to reconcile. And that reconciliation is always on God's terms. Amen. Reconciliation is always on God's terms. I made peace with God uh, on the terms that he had demanded from me. And those terms were through the Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death and his substitutionary righteous life. So Exodus chapter number five, as this narrative continues to unfold, that God is working to redeem and reconcile uh, the race of men as they've fallen with Adam. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? To let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works? Get you under your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tail of the bricks which they did make heretofore, you shall lay upon them, you shall not diminish aught thereof. For they be idle, therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out and their officers, and they spake to the people, saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get your straw where you can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters hastened them, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily task as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded, Wherefore have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today, as heretofore? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servants? There is no straw given to thy servants. And they say to us, Make brick, and behold, thy servants are beaten, but the fault is in thine own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle, therefore you say, Let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord. Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given you, yet you shall deliver the tale of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were evil, 
that they were in evil case after it was said, you shall not minish aught from your bricks of your daily task. And they met with Moses and Aaron who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge because you have made our savor to be a board in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil and treated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to the people. And neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Israel, we invoke your name, mindful of the Messiah of Israel, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, knowing that we were not part of this covenant originally. We are, as the Apostle Paul said, a wild olive branch grafted in. But we've been grafted in by grace that we might be to your praise and glory forever. We thank you that what you began when you promised to our father Adam to redeem, that that has been fulfilled through Jesus. We are proof. We've been redeemed through Christ from the burden of sin and the decay of being separated from you. So bless the word and our meditation in it. In Jesus' name, amen. With a strong hand. So the book of Exodus essentially is a mission, and the mission is to bring God's covenant people out of the land of Egypt where they have been in excess of 400 years, where they went in as 70-some souls plus Joseph. And now they need to come out of this land where they have become a significant culture group called the Hebrews. And they need to come out and go to the land that God had previously promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob in a covenant. And that covenant was symbolized through the covenant of Abraham and the circumcision of the male. And the people in these 400 years had lost sight of that due to the grievant nature of their suffering. Moses himself had lost sight of that. The mission, therefore, is to bring the people out in the Exodus. And God had delivered a method in the man named Moses, who was one of the most significant leaders of human history and one of the most admirable individuals in the Bible. But 
it's amazing God uses Moses at all, isn't it? It's amazing God can use any of us. And that's by design. For Moses himself struggled in his life with this covenant that God had made with them, his identity to that covenant, and, and the value of it. And if you're reading along in the book of Moses, you would have even come to that uh, chapter number four section where God is going to kill Moses because Moses didn't uh, circumcise his son. And so Moses' wife, Zipporah, takes a sharp stone, does the circumcision in order to deliver Moses from God's wrath. You can read that and think, what in the world? That seemed like a strange imposter of a story. But what it is, it's once again, it's, it's a glimpse inside of the struggle that they're having with internally and externally, even Moses himself struggling with his identity, uh, struggling with this covenant, struggling with the opposition that's against him for the opposition that's against him. It's Pharaoh. In the land of Egypt, Pharaoh is like a god. As far as, as Moses and the Hebrews are concerned, Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. And we, we use that title sometimes to describe the president of the United States. We say the most powerful man in the world. And that is that office is so significant because this nation is so significant. But thank God we live in a country where even that individual, the president of the United States, whosoever it should be, is being restrained by law, right? Being restrained by law should be anyway. The law should rule from the president down to somebody who's panhandling on the street. Nobody has a greater amount of civil liberty and civil right. With civil rights, all of us have a constitutional uh, portion here from the president down to the panhandler. But in this day, there was no constitution. There was no sense of uh, civil rights. And Pharaoh was not subject to any law except for what he would decree. He had the life. He had the power of life. He had the power of death. And Moses has been chosen in a unique way as it all unfolded in chapters one through four. And those first 40 years being counted within the royalty of Egypt, but then in the next 40 years being lost in exile on the backside of a desert somewhere, keeping another man's herds. And in his final 40 years, for Moses' life lays out in three spans of 40 years, that would make him 120 years when he dies. That's a significant amount of life, I have to admit. But yet when he dies, it talks about how that his eye was not dim, his strength had not abated, that physically there wasn't anything wrong with Moses on the day he died. That he could have went on into the land. Pretty clear that's another sermon yet to come, except that Moses' anger on more than one occasion uh, got the better part of him. And Moses was a man of passion, and we talked about that last week. Extremely admirable man, but a real human being. And this even unfolds as God calls Moses in chapter number three and four before the, burn, the bush that burned, and Moses has a series of reasons why he's not the man to go. And God reassures Moses, uh, you are the man to go because I'm the, the power behind you. Well, uh, we come here to the method of how God is going to fulfill this mission, this mission with this man who is extremely admirable, but at the same time is faltering uh, all through this this entire thing that unfolds. And, and the way God is going to fulfill this is it's going to be God that does that, that does this incredible deliverance. And Moses and Aaron and the others are going to be his instruments of seeing this done. This book we call Exodus lists itself within 40 chapters and divides so nicely in chapters 1 through 19 as the Detailed explanation to bring the people before the law of God in chapters 20, where the Ten Commandments are, through 40, where God meets the people at the tabernacle, then gives us a nice division as to seeing how God has a purpose in bringing the people from bondage to fellowship, to submission with Him, so that for the Hebrew people, it's an if-or. If you want to stay in bondage, stay in Egypt. Or come out of Egypt and submit yourself to me. And the New Testament application of it, I think, of Romans chapter number 6, where 
Paul the Apostle tells us that before we came to know Jesus, we were slaves to sin. But since we've come to know Christ, we've become slaves of righteousness. We've become servants of righteousness. We've submitted ourselves to righteousness, to the righteousness of God, both through Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And it's an if or or, it's one or the other. And for the Hebrew people, it's going to be one or the other. They can either stay in Egypt and live under the slavery of, of their Egyptian bondage, or God can redeem them from this slavery and bring them out to a liberty that means they'll submit themselves to God. And this submission is illustrated in the way that God unfolds his law and unfolds his system of how they would worship God and relate to God in the tabernacle and the priesthood that would follow in the latter part of Exodus, where you can plug in the rest of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, Genesis gives us Joseph at the end going into Egypt with Jacob, and it bridges into Exodus. And Exodus opens with an explanation as to how God's people ended up, the Hebrew people ended up in Egypt, and a reminder that they're not supposed to be there, so God's going to bring them back on to the promise of a covenant that I read here in chapter number 6. So God's got to bring them back on a promise. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai in chapters number 17 through 20, where they can get the law. And then he unfolds the plan of the tabernacle and the priesthood where they can worship. And then the rest of the Torah will plug within that. The rest of the final three books of Moses. So you got the the book of Leviticus then that pertains to the Levites, all the instructions as the Levitical priesthood and how they would operate the tabernacle. You get Deuteronomy, which is the idea of a second law, this idea of let's read the law again and let's see how the law has transformed us. That same law that begins at Mount Sinai in chapter 20 of Exodus and unfolds. And then you've got the book of Numberings, which is their 40-year wandering of how they're struggling against this concept that we're supposed to be submitted to God. And the reality that they want is they, they want to be free from Egypt. They want to be free from the Egyptian bondage, but they want to be free to be their own sovereign. See the point? They want to be their own God. That's what they want to be. They want to be their own God. They want to be their own ruler. They want to be their own lawgiver. They want to be their own authority. Uh, they want to be on their own. And even when their own image doesn't satisfy they look at Aaron and they say, here's gold, make us a calf. We want to, want to ascribe our deity a form, so make us a calf. And then we can rise up and play. And so the Torah here, the first five books of the Bible, is an incredible puzzle as it unfolds in its entirety. It fits together so perfectly. Because even as I mentioned to you that Genesis bridges into Exodus, and then Exodus branches into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it all comes back to Genesis chapter 3, where the, the devil takes a form of a subtle serpent, comes to the woman and says, yea, has God said? And she says, well, well uh, no, God has not said. For God does know. And the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open, and you'll be as God's, knowing good and evil. You can be your own. You go on your own, branch out, do your own thing. The devil teaches Adam and Eve that you can question God's word. You can question God's wisdom. You can even question God's motive. You can even question God's motive. Your kids have done that to you, right? They question your word. And then they can question your wisdom. You don't know. You didn't say. You don't know. But then they start to question your motive. Wait a minute. I'm smiling because all of a sudden flashed back to me the time I heard one of our wee little ones who was the most expressive with language, the most vocal of our four kids, one time look at mother and I and say, we are nothing but your slaves, aren't we? We are your slaves. <laughs> that was Sarah, the aspiring elementary school teacher who whined to us one time, probably about seven years old, Wait a minute, we're your slaves. This isn't fair. This isn't right. I'm on my own now. As the same one who 
looked at me one time at the dinner table and said, Dad, how do we know we're really here? <laughs> I mean, how do we actually know we're actually here? Shut your mouth and eat your Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so, there's a real showdown going here that's beginning to unfold in Exodus chapter 5. It shouldn't be a surprise to you because back here in Exodus chapter number 3, it was already glimpsed as a foreshadowing. Uh, when uh, God said to Moses before the burning bush in 19 of Exodus 3, I am sure the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. After that, he will let you go. So this is going to unfold through what is the series of ten plagues. And these ten plagues ultimately will be an affront against the gods of Egypt. These ten plagues, the plague of the Nile being turned to blood, the first plague. Uh, happy was the deity of the Nile. The second plague, frogs filling the land. The third plague, gnats or lice, some type of a swarming bug. The fourth plague, uh, swarms. Of, uh, of flies and then livestock dying. Uh, sixth plague against their skin called a boil or some type of a, a plague upon their skin. A seventh plague of hail, described a fiery hail with thunder in there. Uh, must have been a lightning. An eighth plague of uh, a grasshopper, locust-type Egyptian creature that devours their their wheat, a ninth plague of a darkness, a darkness upon the land for three days, uh, that is a thick, frightening darkness, and a tenth plague that is announced by Pharaoh himself. He gets to choose the tenth plague, and he announces the plague, and you know what that plague is, uh, the plague of the death upon the firstborn. Uh, in any, whether it's Egypt, Hebrews, or livestock, any not under uh, the protection of the blood of a Passover lamb. And when you take the time to read these ten plagues, uh, it's fascinating. And I even struggle with how much depth do I want to get into these ten plagues. It's worthy of our time, but it is a Bible study type of an approach, good for a Sunday school class, uh, your own Bible study or a small group Bible study, and even in a sermon series, but it would take significant time. In the broader narrative, I want you to note that these ten plagues each correspond to something the Egyptians are treasuring in their theology, which is of superstition, but each of these ten plagues there is an affront to their belief system what they treasure, what they fall back upon from Pharaoh to Pharaoh's servants are all falling back into this system of belief that uh, they're the most powerful people in their part of the world because they pay homage to these imaginations, to these belief systems. And the reality is in, in each of these plagues that come, as Moses pronounces the plague, and at times, as Moses then retracts the plague, because Pharaoh will ask, some of these plagues will be upon the land in its entirety and will affect everyone. For instance, the, the Nile River turning to blood will affect all the land, for they need the Nile for watering and for irrigation. They're forced to labor to find water. That will affect all the inhabitants of the land, including uh, the Hebrews, but others of the plagues won't affect the Hebrews. It'll seem to favor specifically the Egyptians. And with that specific nature, they'll be able to see that this is a pronouncement of judgment upon the Egyptians because they refuse to obey the voice of God. Even as it is in 5.2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? This is really a lifelong battle. It's a lifelong battle that not only began in Genesis 3, but it's repeated in Genesis 4, isn't it? So in Genesis 4, I'm just going to make a quick reference to have Cain and Abel. 
And Cain, uh, Abel brings the acceptable sacrifice, and Cain brings the unacceptable sacrifice. And Cain is unwilling to submit himself to God. He refuses the acceptable sacrifice, and instead this leads him into depravity, to which then he seeks vengeance, uh, and the vengeance comes out against his brother Abel. And the voice of God to Cain in 4.10 is, What have you done? What have you done? And Cain's response is one of self-defense and self-justification. And the result is 4.16, Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord to dwell in the land of Nod. I've brought that up over and over again to you, that in the book of Genesis, then you, you have these two specific uh, genealogies, these two specific cultures that are occurring. The culture of Cain, who is the Lord, the voice of the Lord uh, doesn't matter to me, and I'm going to live my life out of the presence of God. And you have the descendancy of Seth, the culture of Seth. Men now begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and that two simultaneous cultures then comes to a clash in the days of Noah. Remember that? The days of Noah, what is it? The culture of Cain, where the imagination of men is evil, it's unrestrained, and men are, are, are conquering and, and, uh, men, and then Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord as a descendant of Seth, and Noah delivering the line of Seth through the ark, while the line of Cain perishes in a judgment. You got that? And then the narrative comes out of the ark to where uh, humanity reproduces, the line of Seth that reproduces, Yet here's the Tower of Babel. Here's the name to ourself, the people of the Tower of Babel says. Let's erect a monument to the heavens in the name of ourselves. There it is again. And, and in Genesis 11, God looking at the people and God looking at the monument and then scattering the people with languages of judgment, yet once again dividing the people among themselves. And then from Genesis 11, right at the tail end, Here's this idol worship by the name of Abram, who has a barren wife by the name of Sarai, and God's saying, come out and let me make of you a people, a culture that will know who I am, that will submit themselves to my sovereignty, that I can do my wonders through you. And then fast forward, and they, they multiply in the millions, and here we are in Exodus 5. And what do we have? We have the exact same narrative, don't we? We have the, the spirit of Cain, the descendancy of Cain, not the little descendancy, but this sense of a fallen race, a depraved people saying, who is the voice? I don't know the Lord. I don't know your God. I'm not letting those people go. And God's saying to Moses, I'm going to use you and Aaron, and you're going to lead my people out to my mountain where they will worship me. Ten plagues. This is the method to which God is going to use to judge this spirit of Cain and deliver this type of Seth people out. Ironically, not only do we have these ten plagues, but equally, there are ten occasions, be something you'd enjoy looking up, ten occasions within these following chapters where Pharaoh will say, who is the Lord? And in some inclination, the stiffening and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned. Simultaneously, the mind of the Lord so passed our searching out, as there are these ten occasions in these chapters that unfold where Pharaoh is stiff and hardened, shaking his fist at God, there are equally these ten occasions where God says to Pharaoh, I have reserved you for judgment, and I'm going to judge you to show the wonders of my glory. These exist simultaneously. So think about what I've, I've just explained to you. There are 10 plagues, and there are 20 occasions within the 10 plagues where it's referenced that the, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is the reason that Egypt is suffering. And of these 20 occasions of the reference of the hardness, 10 belong to God and 10 belong to Pharaoh. 
this hardness of Pharaoh before God is reminiscent of the reality that God will judge the work that the devil has done through the fallen nature of humanity. And he will judge this with a strong, victorious hand. At the end of the Red Sea, looking forward, uh, the first psalm in the Bible comes up in Exodus chapter 15. It's called the Song of Moses. And in the Song of Moses, in verse number 3, Moses sings about the reality that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. His opponent was Pharaoh. And the Lord cast Pharaoh into the midst of a sea, his chariots in the midst of a sea. This goes all the way through the Bible. This same type of theme that that the Lord is not afraid to declare himself as a man of war, as a warrior. And he will face the depravity that Satan's deception has caused in humanity, and he will conquer Satan. It's all the stories of the Old Testament, and they all foreshadow to the person of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? A foreshadow to the person of Christ. In Matthew chapter number four, after the baptism of Jesus, it's mentioned how that the Spirit drives Jesus in the wilderness where he fasts, in 40 days, and the tempter comes to him. And the tempter says to him, take the stone, make it bread. I noticed you're hungry. And the tempter uh, says to him, from the pinnacle of the temple, jump, I know the angels will catch you. And the tempter says to him, the influent, the kingdoms of the world, the hearts of men, I'll yield to you. If you will yield to me, a worship, a worth. No doubt a worth equal to the worth that the tempter was offering to Adam and Eve back in the garden of temptation, back into Eden. A worth equal as God's. And yet, victorious Christ will be when he will reference the authority of the voice of God three times, Jesus will say, it is written, finally be gone, And whereas Adam failed in a temptation, in a perfect environment, by the way, remember that, Jesus goes to to the most inhospitable environment, faces a similar temptation, and prevails. That makes him the last Adam, the second Adam. It makes him the man from heaven. We've descended initially from the man of the earth, but then we come to Christ in repentance for salvation, and we are born again that we might associate with the man from heaven. Amen? We've been led from Egyptian bondage is the story that's unfolding here from Moses' ancient Torah. God really has redeemed a people from a Pharaoh figure, from a taskmaster who sent us all over the land because we complained about how heavy the burden of sin is. And so what does the devil do when you complain about sin? Pat you on the shoulder and introduces some new sin you haven't tried yet. Because the other one wore off. Let me give you something else. Shoot this one up instead. Until you're laying dead and wallowing in your own depravity. And the devil is happy to see eternity of darkness come to the lost culture of Cain. Not only does Jesus faced Satan, but uh, Jesus faces evil in the same way that Moses must face evil. In Matthew chapter number 14, Matthew chapter number 14 is a story out of the Passion Night of Christ when he is... um, Actually, I'm bringing you to the wrong passage. It's, it's uh, Mark is where I need to bring you. Mark 14. If you're coming on Wednesday night, you would, have, you would have seen this recently. 
But in Mark 14, Jesus uh, will stand before Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate again. So the trial of Jesus is actually five trials together. Because initially it's, it's Annas, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, uh, Pilate, who doesn't want anything to do with this, chapter 15, verse 1. Then he'll send him off to Herod in Luke 23, 8. Looking at my notes, I told you Matthew uh, 14, and then I told you Mark 15, and then all the current current me, I should have told you Luke 23. So the egg is on my face, uh, Luke 23, as I blush before you today. Luke 23. So uh, let me give it to you again, Luke 23, 8. So the trial of Jesus as he stands before the judgment, the civil authority, is Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate again. And here he is standing before Herod. This would be Herod Antipas. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he had hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he would answer him nothing. The chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Herod, with his man of war, set him at naught, mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. So here's the significance. Here's Herod who gets his opportunity to have a private audience with Jesus. And Herod even has some questions. He had heard of Jesus. At one time he thought that Jesus could be a reincarnation of the impressive prophet John the Baptist. Now the reason that Herod has such an interest in John the Baptist is because Herod had opportunity to spend a lot of time with John the Baptist. He also had an offense with John the Baptist. That was the Matthew 14 that I originally gave to you, which you don't have to go there now, but you can make a note of it. But in the Matthew 14, verses number 1 through 12, is the explanation that Herod Antipas had become embarrassed by John the Baptist's preaching because Herod Antipas had divorced his wife, had married his brother's wife instead, and that was a sexual immorality that John the Baptist had publicly called Herod out to repent. Herod was so offended by this that he had arrested and imprisoned John the Baptist, but he was afraid of the baptizer because he knew the baptizer was not only popular with the people, but he also knew the baptizer was an authentic prophet. He had an interest in what the baptizer had to say, John, that is. And no doubt they had conversations together until Herod's lust was inflamed through a seductive dance of his wife's daughter, Herodias, where she seduced Herod to give to uh, her anything she wanted. And her evil-hearted mother said the head of John the Baptist because he's an offense. And so Herod ordered the execution of John the Baptist. And this hurt and fear and caused Herod fear to the point where he wondered, according to Matthew 14, if Jesus was a reincarnation of John the Baptist. So what kind of questions do you think that Herod has for Jesus? As he gets opportunity now to examine Jesus personally right within his own palace, and he's got an authority over Jesus. And what type of answers does Jesus have for Herod? What does Jesus offer Herod? He offers him nothing. He offers him silence. He offers him no explanation. He offers him no further truth. He offers him no miracle. He offers him no proof of demonstration to his authority or power. He offers to Herod absolutely nothing. Almost as if the New Testament is willing to lend to us that the only thing left for Herod is an eternity of silent, black, suffering, darkness, and hell. Because Herod 
will give glory to Christ even through his own destruction. And this is exactly what Pharaoh will do. He will give glory to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even through Pharaoh's own destruction. There's a theology for this in the New Testament in the book of Romans, uh, in Romans chapter number 9. And I think time will allow us to think about it for just a moment. Uh, Check it out with me, Romans chapter number 9. Romans chapter number 9, verse number 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this selfsame purpose, I'm sorry, even for this same purpose, have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared to glory. Paul, the apostle, using Pharaoh in the hardness of his heart, God and his hardening of Pharaoh's heart, in the mystery of these two things that simultaneously exist, to show that God, in his glory, will show his glory both through the deliverance of those that he's redeeming, and through the destruction of those to whom he's judging. I was reading this week, and I thought that this was interesting. It was a good way of putting it. Alfred Edersheim, uh, who was German and Jewish, who lived uh, in the 1800s, said this on this passage. The effect of one is the hardening of man to his own destruction, that of the other the hardening of man to the glory of God. The hardening of man to his own destruction is also the hardening of man to the glory of God. So in more simple, plain words, is God glorified by the destruction of Egypt and the destruction of Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. God is glorified because he shows the power of the man of war as he delivers a people to himself. So let's just go ahead and extrapolate that. Is God glorified through the suffering of Christ and the resurrection of Christ as Christ triumphs over the devil? And the answer is God is glorified through both the suffering of Christ and the resurrection of Christ as he triumphs over the devil then is God glorified through the redemption of one human being who goes into heaven in an eternal rest? And is he glorified through another human being who enters into a darkness of hell for an eternal destruction? And the answer is yes. God is glorified. God is glorified through the redemption of one man and through the destruction of another. Because amazingly, God respects the sovereignty in a mystery. He respects the sovereignty of a human being to choose life or death, even when that death is an eternity in hell. It's unfolding right here in, in the book of Exodus. 
that God is a man of war. And he will not only redeem people, but he will also give to people what they want. And that is destruction. I've had people say that to me. You know, and I think this is, this is a very worthy thing to wrestle with. How could you say that God is a God of love and hell exists? That is a worthy thing to wrestle with as we think these things through. How can hell and the description of hell exist and God be loving? It can. It can exist. I may not need to understand how it exists because I'm not God and I don't have God's uh, spirit. I don't have his wisdom and I don't understand God's emotion. I was made from God. God was not made from me. But I can see that this exists. The glory and the compassion of God, the love and the justice of God existing simultaneously in both the deliverance of the Hebrews and the destruction of the Egyptians. And, um, and this, this exists around us. I get like you do. I, I get weary and discouraged with people who don't want to hear about the gospel. They don't want to hear about Jesus. I feel it too. I feel the pain of it and the weariness of it. And I feel the concern. This is a burden we should have for people that we love that are lost. And so when people are saying, pray for lost family, this is genuine. Pray for our lost loved ones. This is genuine. These are genuine things. This is real. We are praying. We're praying that God would have mercy. But we're, we're doing this with the, with the careful mind that there is no mercy outside of Christ. And the people that we love and treasure who reject Christ, there is no hope for them beyond that rejection. There is no hope. It is the vessel of wrath now fitted to destruction. And I would love to make the case that God is most glorified through everybody I love being saved. And that's always my prayer. That, is, that just makes so much sense to me. That God is most glorified through everybody I love getting saved. But that's me. And I'm slanted and out of balance. Because the other side of that is God is equally glorified regardless of whether I love anybody through those that reject Christ, experiencing the wrath of God and destruction. It's equally glorified. And this is a burden to bear, isn't it? It's the burden Jesus bore. He bore it at the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's the burden Jesus bore. It's the burden Paul bore. He, he bore that burden when he was uh, before Agrippa, when he said, Agrippa, don't you believe? I know you believe. Agrippa said, almost, Paul, you persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, almost and altogether, except the bonds, except the chains, I, I do want you to believe. And even right here, where I was in Romans 9, uh, Paul said in, in 9 earlier that he had a continual heaviness, a continual burden on his heart for his kinsmen. He had a continual burden that they would be saved. P.P. Bliss wrote this hymn in 1871, Almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I will call. Almost persuaded, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. O wanderer, come. And then listen to the third verse of Bliss's song. Almost persuaded, harvest now past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. Almost, but lost. I think P.P. Bliss wrestled with those words of Agrippa. Almost, he wrestled with the burden of knowing that God is equally prepared to be glorified, not just through redemption, but he is equally prepared and says he will be glorified through wrath. And uh, he was glorified through the destruction of Egypt. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you afforded to us the time and the attention to go through your word and look here in the book of Exodus and reflect upon 
your strong arm against Pharaoh and your kind hand to guide out the Hebrews. And we pray that all who hear uh, this message would be convinced to turn from sin, to turn to Jesus and be born again. And we pray that we would not be weary in sharing this life-giving plea, this rescuing message with the people that we love, regardless of how blind the eye may appear, deaf the ear, or heavy the mind with sleep. To remember that it was the gospel that aroused us out of our stupor and made us flee the wrath to come. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and, and you don't know that Christ is your Savior, could I encourage you to respond affirmatively to this plea to turn from sin and repentance and faith to Christ and salvation? Would you like a prayer partner? I, I see that Pat can pray with you. James can pray with you. They're near the front door. If you're online listening, could I pray with you? Could you reach out to me and let me know what your heart's desire is? If you are one who's experienced that salvation and you have that peace with God, then take this moment to reflect and pray upon how precious the redeeming work of God, that he would save a sinner such as you and I, and how wonderful the message that we bear from our heart to our lips, to any way we can communicate to the world around us that needs to hear. So take this moment here. Pray for just a moment. Amen. Thank you, Linda. She plays on that piano. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips a solid.